plans to rob a small-town bank go awry. While Robin Williams teaches a group of boarding school students to seize the day. Coming up next on Out of Touchdown. keep a date with my little girl who was uh, back in the state. I was stranded in the jungle, uh, afraid and alone, trying to figure a way to get a message back home. But I was out of know that the wreckage of my plane had been picked up and spotted in my girl in lover's lane. And meanwhile, back in the States... back in the jungle now there is a very fun song that is the cadets doing stranded in the jungle i noticed that there weren't too many songs to choose from for this particular episode so i went with a, a little fun doo-wop type of song from the 50s uh this is out of touchstone my name is mike DeCalvin. like a good californian i am still practicing my social distancing measures so on the other end of the skype line is my co-host chad smart chad how are you doing well, other than stir crazy and and going insane, I'm doing well. Yeah, this this quarantine thing it's it's been a uh, it, you know it's been a rough two months and it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. So just trying to make the best of it. I have made friends with my refrigerator and okay. and you know other inanimate objects around my house that are starting to talk back to me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's not good. Yeah, I've, I haven't made friends with anybody. Like, we literally, I mean, I, I find myself kind of waving at neighbors if I see them in passing, but not very often. Although we did get together with my wife's family over the weekend, just for Mother's Day, and it was masks in place, kind of standing apart from each other, you know, we doing our best to, to sort of do. But, but let's try to be positive here. Let's talk about, well, at least one good movie on, on our discussion today or two. But before we get too far into the discussion, I wanted to take a, a quick break just to give a shout out to one of our listeners, whose name is Jeffrey Grissett. And he's been following us on Twitter and, and really lots of positive comments. And I wanted to uh, mention that a couple of episodes ago, we discussed beaches. And Chad and I both kind of had a little bit of a mini rant where we were complaining how Wind Beneath My Wings did not get any love from the Golden Globes or the Academy. And duh, Jeffrey was nice enough to tweet at me and, and say that the reason The Wind Beneath My Wings did not get nominated for the best song at the Academy Awards is because it's the best original song at the Academy Awards. And of course, Wind Beneath My Wings was a cover tune that had been done by several artists before Vet did it. So I did want to give Jeffrey a shout out. So thanks for listening as well. I did uh, not we realize got- it was a cover. I, yeah, I, I mean, we, we I discussed it on the episode. I just it just totally uh, slipped my mind. Like I had this feeling that man, there must have been a year where a song got nominated that was sort of like a quasi cover, or it had been written by somebody mm-hmm. else and then not recorded, and then they the cat somebody you know like I could see the, the producers of these movies appealing to the Academy and, and trying to get their way to get a nomination, mm-hmm. but 
Who knows? Uh, again, so we're, we're now into 1989. We touched on, I think we touched on, touched on it on the last episode. Not, this doesn't appear to be as good of a year as the previous two have been for Touchstone, but we are going to discuss, like I said, one of the better movies that they ever made in general. Uh, first up, as Chad mentioned, we've got uh, a, a bank robbery that's gone awry, and this features a great ensemble cast. This movie was released on April 14th of 1989, and it's called Disorganized Crime. From Touchstone Pictures, when four crooks from the city try to rob one bank in the country while being chased by two cops from New Jersey. Give me clothes! Give me clothes! Things could get a little disorganized. This is no time to be self-conscious. It's Corbin Burnson, Reuben Blades, Fred Gwynn, Ed O'Neill, and Lou Diamond Phillips in a comedy about crime. We got it! We got it! We lost it! We found I'm it! I'm gonna kill him! Nothing like working with the best. Disorganized Crime, rated R. Starts Friday, April 14th, at a theater near you. Okay, this was a movie that I remember from my youth. I mean, I think we talked about it on our show before, but Showtime was was showing a lot of the Touchstone movies. And I remember my parents really liking this movie because it was like, essentially, it was the first time I'd seen Al Bundy in a movie. We were big Married with Children fans at the time. But I was curious to see it. I bought it on Blu-ray, I think, when I got my Blu-ray player years ago. I was found it for like $4 at a store and said, oh, it's a movie from my childhood. I should get it. And I hadn't watched it. I don't think I'd ever actually seen it from beginning to end until we watched it for the show. And whoo, boy. But uh, OK, let's start with the backstory. Of course, it was written and directed by Jim Koof. And if that name sounds familiar for our listeners, he also wrote Stakeout for Touchstone back in 1987. He had had steady work throughout the 1980s. He'd written films such as Class and Up the Creek, Secret Admirer. And his last writing credit was a movie called The Hidden, which is actually a really good science fiction movie with Kyle MacLachlan, I recommend. The only prior directing credit he had was for a movie in 1986 called Miracles, which starred Tom Conti and Terry Garr, which was made for Orion Pictures, one of the great uh, film studios of the 80s. Um, I read that uh, Jim Koof had actually made a deal with Jeffrey Katzenberg told, and told him he could make the movie Disorganized Crime for $5 million. And they agreed, sure, go ahead. <laughs> Uh, the director of Stakeout, John Badham, would go on to serve as an executive producer on this film as well. We need a cast, and boy, do we have a great cast. Uh, we'll start with Corbin, Corbin Bernson. He was a television star, most notably for L.A. Law, which was just wrapping up its third season at the time at the film's release. He'd only done a handful of films, in court, including the Touchstone classic, Hello Again, which I say classic sarcastically because I do not want to remember that movie. Uh, his most recent film credit before this organized crime was Major League, which is still one of the great sports movies. It was actually released one week before this organized crime. Uh, we also have Ruben Blades, who I, I, I did not realize what a renaissance man this, he was. You know, he was, a, he was a law student, very popular singer in the Latin music genre throughout the 1970s. And then as the 80s rolled around, he kind of ventured into acting. He did movies such as Critical Condition, the Nickelodeon's Kids' Choice Award winner, Fatal Beauty, uh, the Milagro Beanfield War. Uh, his most recent role before this film was a TV movie with Danny Glover called Dead Man Out. Not over. First off, before we go any further, Chad, are you overly familiar with Ruben Blades and his career before acting or even his acting career? Well, I thought I knew... You know, was familiar with him, but uh, I did not realize his name was Blades. I have been calling him Ruben Blades during my I research. Could, I hope I'm right on that because I thought that was one of those things. I was going to go on YouTube and maybe try to watch some interviews where hmm. listen to see how the host says it, but I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Blades. Yeah, I believe he. I've heard it both ways. That's a psych yes. reference. 
<laughs> talking about Corbin oh, Burnson. I'll Corbin Burnson, there you go. Throw in there. Uh, yeah, actually, I am like halfway through the Milagro Beanfield War because I wanted to watch it just to because I haven't seen I, I've seen a lot of Ruben Blades, uh, including Fatal Beauty, in the last couple of months. But uh, yeah, I, I know the name, and I'm sure if I saw him in something, I would recognize him and be it's that guy. But I couldn't mm-hmm. tell you anything about him uh, off the top of my head. I mean, I didn't realize he was such a successful singer. I mean, he's yeah. won Grammy Awards and stuff. It's mm. crazy. Uh, the ensemble continues. We'll we'll go to on next to the great Fred Gwynn, who, of course, had been on television since the 1950s, most famously in the TV series Car 54, Where Are You?, and playing the iconic role of Herman Munster in The Munsters. It's interesting to see that he has a late career resurgence in the 1980s with movies like The Cotton Club. Of course, he played the commissioner in Touchstone's film Offbeats. He was also in The Secret of My Success and Fatal Attraction. His most recent film role would have been Ironweed, which another one of the ones I've heard of in the 80s, never actually saw. As I mentioned before, Al Bundy's making a movie. Yes, Ed O'Neill, who had worked steadily in television and, of course, was the star of Married with Children. And just like L.A. Law, Married with Children was wrapping up its third season, the time of Disorganized Crimes release. He'd only had two prior film roles. I thought this was interesting. They were both in 1980. So, I mean, he, he'd done a lot of television work, but hadn't done movies in nearly a decade. He did a movie called The Dogs of War, and he's also in the William Friedkin Al Pacino movie, Cruising. I, again, I have not seen that one as well. Yeah, I was uh, kind of surprised because I was, I was trying to remember when Married with Children had premiered, and, and I forgot that it came on in 87 when Fox Television launched. So I was, mm-hmm. I, I was wondering how you know, what his star level was at the time of disorganized crime. And like you said, married with children was a huge show for Fox. And if it had already finished three seasons, then yeah. he, he was a much bigger star than I expected at this time. And I wonder if a lot of actors get pigeonholed like that, mm-hmm. where again, he made a couple of movies and then he did television for seven or eight years. Mm-hmm. And then it was, I'm mean, I wonder if uh, casting directors just saw, Oh, he's a TV guy. And all of a sudden married with children is a huge hit. I remember he hosted, he was was he the first Fox star to host Saturday Night Live? And I remember mm. he had a during his monologue, he, he brings out Maury Povich, who was doing, I think, a current affair. Mm. And, and they made a They made a comment about that. He was just like, oh, we've we got a band together. We're the Fox people. And he was the first person from a Fox television show to to be the host of SNL. Yeah, Interesting. So. Uh, our next uh, star is a star on the rise, no doubt. Uh, this is Lou Diamond Phillips. You know, he had done La Bamba, Stand and Deliver. And of course, Young Guns. I read something in my research that. The role that Lou Diamond Phillips played in Disorganized Crime, Emilio Estevez was offered the role and turned it down. So his co- his co-star from Young Guns, of course, Emilio Estevez had been in Stakeout before. Uh, now, the most recent, go uh, ahead, go ahead. I was just saying the most recent role that Lou Diamond Phillips had done was a film called Dakota, which another one of the ones that I vaguely remember but never actually saw. Well, that's going to bring it up because we're talking 1989, and I believe it's from 89 as well, but. Lou Diamond Phillips and another Young Guns co-star, Kiefer Sutherland, did a movie oh, yeah. called Renegade. Yeah, Renegades, which I feel is kind of Renegades. like lost in the annals of time. Like it's not a movie that you ever see anywhere or people bring up. But I mm-hmm. remember seeing it and, and enjoying it. I would be curious to go back and see it again. Yeah, I rem- I mean, I know it's. I actually saw it back in the day. Again, when I was growing up, my my family we always had we had HBO and Showtime. For some reason, not Cinemax or Movie Channel. It was always HBO and Showtime, and Renegades is one of the ones that was on TV a lot. Yeah, and I think we'll actually bring that that title will get mentioned when we get into the box office performance. Mm-hmm. Um, another actor who I did not recognize, so I'll, I'll let I'll defer to Chad on this one uh, is William Russ. He was he'd been busy with a lot of TV roles 
he did the miniseries of uh, Long Hot Summer, and he was in V. I remember, I remember watching that as a kid, but I don't remember all of the cast. Uh, he had very limited film work. He was also in Cruising. He was in The Right Stuff, Beer, and the Rutger Hauer action movie Wanted Dead or Alive. But when I gave my DVD or my Blu-ray to Chad, he texted me back and said, oh, William Russ is in this. And I was like, who is William Russ, Chad, and why do you know him so much? I, I disappointed that you don't recognize the greatness of William Russ. And I, I didn't reckon, I don't remember him from V. I think the only ones I remember from that are Mark Singer and Robert England, but William Russ to any devoted fan of TGI Fridays or TGIF on ABC in the nineties, he plays Alan Matthews, the dad to Corey and Eric Matthews on boy meets world. So He's been in a few other films that I've seen, but yeah, as soon as I saw his name come up in the credits, I'm like, oh my gosh, you have you know Corbin Burns and Fred Gwynn and O'Neill, Lou Diamond Phillips, and William Russ. How can this movie not be awesome? Yeah, I mean, I never, I did not watch Boy Meets World growing up, and so I assume that this would have only been when did Boy Meets World come on? Maybe three or four years later. I believe it was like ninety five, ninety six. Okay, so it's weird to think that he's playing father roles already, but I guess Corey's what junior high. Yes. In the so, first season, okay. yeah. Yeah, so I guess you can have you can be he's old enough to have a child that age, mm. I guess. Um we can go on and on about this cast. Mm. I'll just mention two more people that wrap up the ensemble. Uh Daniel Roebuck, who was sort of at the beginning of a very productive career. He had notable roles in movies like River's Edge and Project X. And then of course we have the legendary Hoyt Axton, who had a long music career but had reinvented himself with a lot of acting roles in the nineteen eighties in films like The Black Stallion, Heart Like a Wheel, and of course Gremlins. Um, okay so as we're going to get into I personally thought that's one of the best parts of this movie and so as part of our new format I like to go let's have Chad and I list positive and negatives on the film and my first positive for Disorganized Crime is this great ensemble cast I mean they I love how they each has their own persona there's a tenuous chemistry between all of them but it, it it works for the nature of the story and it kind of gives the film you know, a strong setup because there's definitely some uneasiness between this uh, band of criminals. This is it. Frank stuff's in the bedroom. Then where the hell is Frank? Maybe he found a woman. Hmm. Frank would have been here. That depends on the woman. This is a bad sign. A bad sign. I do not like starting jobs with bad signs. Maybe the woman's husband came home and shot him. No, this isn't like Frank. Frank would have been here. I say we get the hell out. I came a long way for this job. I think we should give Frank a few hours. He doesn't show by morning. Then we'll decide. I don't feel like going back before I find out what I came here for. You? Yeah, I can hang for a night. Oh, so you guys take a vote. That's it. Huh? I'm stuck here. You should be proud to live in a democracy. The only thing I'm proud of is that I'm not in jail, and I want to keep it that way. So do I. If I go back inside the cell again, that'll be it for me. I don't have the time to make mistakes. The only reason I'm here is because of Frank. The only reason Frank would have come here is a setup. Frank is particular about his setups and about his people. Me and Frank worked together eight times. I don't know any of you. I'm with you. This cast, as I mentioned when discussing William Russ, you know, it's I, I see that poster of the of the film cover, I guess, or the DVD art. And you're just like, this is an all star cast. This is a movie that whether 
even when I didn't know anything about the movie, if I saw that that cast on a you know on the DVD box or whatever, I'm gonna rent this movie because this cast is outstanding. Yeah, it's funny. We have uh, one of our friends, Tyson Thorpe. He had texted me when I mentioned that I, I always like to post on social media when I'm watching the movies just to see if there's any kind of if any of my friends have seen the movie and, and could kind of get a conversation going. And, and I think when I posted this one, he was like, how have I not heard of this? Like he was like, I said, yeah, you look at that cast. It's one of these movies that just kind of slid out in the late 80s with, again, a lot of people who were either on their way up or like Fred Gwynn, who had been around for a long time. And Yeah, it is one. It's easily the best part of the movie. I wish it would have been, you know, a stronger script, hmm. but at least you can't go wrong with, with acting, you know, at least with a, with a cast like that. Um, as far as other positives, I, the, one of the first things that struck me when I watched it was there's just the gorgeous location photography. They shot the movie in Montana. That's what the director was living. And, you know, when he made that deal with Katzenberg about making the movie for five million, as we're going to discuss in the trivia section, like they, he just shot it in, his, in the town that he was living in. And they used a lot of locals as extras. He used family members to be in the background in mm-hmm. scenes. But I think it, it really helps add to the premise, which is that, you know, like these, these city folk are in the out in nature and they've got to try to rob this bank in this podunk town. But then even if it, but I, I think at the same time, it does kind of make for some cheap humor where it's like, oh, you know, these, you know, these city slickers can't seem to deal with the elements out here. But it, at least, if anything, the movie was fun to look at. Definitely. that I'm with you right there. I think the setting of Montana adds you know, it makes it a unique story. So you're not just, you know, dealing with a, a city bank robbery like most films, or even if you go, you know, a smaller town uh, element that, that would be familiar to most screenwriters. But Montana, you know, I've, I've been there a few times. It's beautiful country. And, wow. and it just, uh, yeah, it, it gives the movie its own identity, I guess you can say. Yeah. And, and like you said, the, the, the writer-director was living there, so, hey, why not make a movie in my own hometown? I don't have to, you know, go very far each morning to, yeah. to shoot and, like you said, use use family and friends for cheap labor. And it, it's different. Unfortunately, they didn't have a lot to work with in terms of, of scripting, so that yeah. is a negative. Yeah, I think one of the well, – before we mention with Montana, I – I get the feeling it's one of those states with a very kind of a laid back lifestyle where this movie's 30 years old. But I, I almost get the feeling if you went to that town, it would probably look exactly the same. Mm-hmm. It had that same. I mean, some of the businesses might be empty or whatever, but it had that same downtown area and where that bank was. And um, the only other positive I had, unfortunately, was I mean, it kind of more specific when dealing with the cast. I, I loved seeing Fred Gwynn. I thought he, he was really great. You know, he has he plays this steady leader of the gang who has, you know, moments of humor and strength, but he, but he does the most he can with a very weak script. And I just have one more mention of Ruben Blades. I mean, he, I thought, was the best of the bunch. You know, he has great comic timing because it's easy when you're... Like, one of the issues I've always had with some of these Touchstone movies is that the, both the cops and the criminals are just bumbling idiots. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think you actually could believe that Ruben Blades was menacing. Because William Russ and Lou Diamond Phillips, Lou Diamond Phillips kind of he give you a mean look. William William Russ does not seem scary, but Ruben Blades is like you really think he could he could mm-hmm. do some damage the way he stares. But then when he can drop some some really funny comedic lines, that I was really impressed with that. And I was interesting. I mean, maybe you'll get into it when we get into the reviews. But I noticed that a lot of the reviews had called out Ruben Blades specifically, like they, as if they thought he was the best of the bunch. So at mm-hmm. least I wasn't alone. Um, Chad, do you have any other positives on the film? 
Well, this isn't really a positive, I, I would say, but it is a, an observation. So I'll just throw it out now because I don't know where else I will fit into the discussion. Corbin Burnson, his look, I, I texted you when I was watching this, and this is for anybody, you have to really visualize this one. Uh, I am used to Corbin Burton now from the psych years where he, uh, you know, he, he's an older man who has lost that luxurious head of hair of his that he had in the 80s. <laughs> um, but with the hairstyle that he had in this movie, plus wearing this plaid shirt at the beginning, I kept seeing Roddy Piper from They Live. And it kind oh, of threw, yeah. it threw me off for like the first 10 minutes of the movie. I'm like, because I just could. And then I'm like imagining Roddy Piper in this role. And I'm like. That would be a whole different film, but yeah, that's all I got. I I got nothing else as far as uh, positives on this film because this movie and teaser for our reviews is it's it's a bit of a disappointment. Yeah, and funny before you before we forget with with Corbin Burns, Corbin Burns is really interesting. I think for people of our generation, where I don't know about you, Chad, I I felt like I was a little too young for L.A. Law. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really going to watch a show about lawyers, and so like. For me, it's like he's Roger Dorn Mm -hmm. in Major League. He'll always be associated with that character because I think he has some of the most range in that particular movie where he's he's kind of a jerk, but then he kind of gets redeemed at the end. And and that movie was so popular and everyone everyone has a very lovable bunch of characters. And then he reappears on site, but that's like 25 years later, right? Or 20 years later. At least. So I feel I feel like that that whole middle section of the night. I mean, he was still acting, I'm sure, but maybe he was doing more grown up roles. So it's easy for people of our generation to just be like, okay, he's a new for major league, and then he's bald and he's the older guy in sight. So, so I, yeah, so it's easy where you where I can see the shock of you seeing him as a young man and thinking he was Roddy Piper because I'm like, yeah, I'm not overly familiar with a lot of his work outside no. of you know major league. Like I, said, I think it's just the shirt, the shirt and the hairstyle. That's what that too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I, you know, we don't like to do this, but we have to get into the <laughs> negatives. Unfortunately, this movie, I thought the negatives kind of outweighed the positives a little bit. Uh, as I mentioned, this it's total Keystone Cops, just to mm. the full extent. I, and my wife and I watched this, and our first question was like, Ed O'Neill and Daniel Roebuck are the police officers. They are from New Jersey, but yet they're in Montana. Like, why have they come all the way over? to try to bring Corbin Brinson back themselves. Like, do they not trust local law enforcement? If Corbin Brinson has crossed state lines, does that not make it a federal thing? You know, I think it's just it's just in there to kind of shoehorn some really cheesy jokes about what bumbling idiots they are, and also the whole city slickers versus nature. You know, and, and for the first half of the movie, like, he also doesn't even, Ed O'Neill's character doesn't even want any help. He doesn't even want to help the local law enforcement because he doesn't want any of the glory stolen and you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like, if you're after a criminal, would you not want, we, as we saw in Shoot to Kill for Touchdown, would you not want as much help as possible? Mm-hmm. You know, it just, it seems like, once again, the, the police are just, ah, oh, they're just, they're morons. And it's it takes you a little bit out of the story, and it, it kind of dumbs it down. I mean, you can make a comedy, no problem, but why you have to make it kind of that dumb? Yeah. Well, I'm going to stick with Corbin Burnson here, and I think you could eliminate Corbin Burnson from this movie and not even recognize that he was missing. I know, sure. You know, when I started watching it, you texted me and said, count how many lines Cor- Corbin Burnson has in the entire film, and it's probably, you know, 10 to 12 max. Yeah. And, about a dozen, I guess, I guess, yeah. And there's no, like, you know, long, it, <clears throat> it's like two or three word sentences, because the whole mm-hmm. premise of the film is he gets arrested before the rest of the bank robbers show up and then they're trying to figure out what where he is and what's going on and if they can do the robbery themselves 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, he could have just disappeared. And so I, I think the lack of, and maybe that's why Corbin Burton took this role is just an easy payday. He's like, Oh, I just got to show be. up and, and get photographed, you know, or get filmed. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the second half yeah. of the movie, there's like a 20 to 30 minute stretch or he's not even in it, you know? And I mean, I don't know if he's billed first because alphabetical, mm-hmm. but he's in all, you know, he's on the poster, he's on the DVD yeah. cover. And yeah, you're right. I, I, I specifically, cause after the movie was over, I was like, you know, I don't remember him having that many lines of dialogue. And so I wanted you to kind of keep an eye out for that. Yeah. No, that's but, true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But then of course the people who do have lines of dialogue, one of the other negatives I had is that they just can't seem to stop cursing. And <laughs> Again, we've talked about it. Chad and I are not prudes by any means, but for a comedy, it just seems like there's a just an abundant proliferation of just the four letter words. I you're watching this movie and you're like, there is no reason this movie should be rated R, mm-hmm. and it's got it's really the only reason. And I I wonder if there was a part of it that I jokingly put in my notes: watch Al Bundy curse, because you know the Al Bundy character is probably cursing when the cameras aren't rolling, right? Like mm-hmm. that character, he's just so frustrated all the time with his wife and his kids. Whereas in this movie, oh wow, now I actually get I get to curse. I you know it's it's got a lot of the the worst elements of some of those '80s comedies that we don't like, which is a lot of pratfalls, a lot of just total overacting. You know, like if somebody something doesn't go right for the cops, they're just they're just hamming it up really bad. And so yeah, I mean again, like I said, we say it all the time, <laughs> we're not prudes, but there is no legitimate reason that this movie is this movie is rated R and it should easily be a, a PG 13. If that. Yeah. I'm trying to think back if there's like how much violence and stuff is in this film or because we compared it to, you know, three fugitives, which was PG 13, which I f- found the, the language much more shocking in that than disorganized mm-hmm. crime. Maybe it's because I went into disorganized crime knowing it was R rated. So it didn't, it wasn't as out of the blue, but I'm trying yeah. to think of why the difference in and the ratings are there i mean they brandish guns but i don't remember seeing mm. people actually firing them right like mm. i mean maybe, maybe maybe toward the end when they're actually do, trying to pull off the bank job like yeah you're right like it's not there isn't it a, a for being criminals you don't actually see them being violent yeah i don't know i'm gonna go with the lowbrow humor in this this you know is just yeah like the scene where they get into the back of the truck hauling pigs and they fall in the manure and it's it's just like, why would you even get into the back of that truck? Anyway, why would you not brace yourself? It, it seems like all the lowbrow humor like is stuff, again, that I consider cheap and lazy writing because it's just yeah. easy jokes, which aren't even really jokes in my opinion. But, yeah, that's, yeah. that was one of the things that really took me out of this film. I mean, I, I say all the time, comedy is subjective. But even with something like this, yeah, you're right. It was a lot of, it was a lot of cheap lazy jokes that was one of the one of my negatives i had on my list was that it was there were plot holes because for the sake of these of easy jokes you know i mean i thought there was a lot of there was a lot of important action in the film that happens off screen and i don't know if that's more more about the budget where it's like well you know there's a scene where they have to rob a bunch of stores to try to get some money to bail out Hmm. william russ's character and so you just hear about them on a police radio rather than actually showing them which I guess, oh, that we don't have to actually waste film and stage this scene. We could just have the characters talk about it. And I mean, I mentioned that you know they 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 try, they try to pull off the heist at the end of the movie, but that was the first thing that my wife said when the movie. I don't even think the movie was over yet, and she said, "Why are they even carrying out the robbery? Like, hmm. Corbin Burnson has planned the robbery robbery and brought them all in, and yet 
when they get there, everything goes wrong. And you're like, okay, why would you not just back out? Like, I feel like we've seen so many heist movies, maybe some serious heist movies, the ones that are more drama than comedy, where you always see a character back out, even if it's just the smallest issue, because they're like, oh, no, one little thing Mm. can set us off. We got to back out. Whereas these ones, everything comes up. And yet they're just like, no, 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 we can still do it. And how much are they doing it for? $500,000. My first thought was like, is inflation kicked in? Like, was that a lot of money 30 years ago? Because you spent that five ways, that's 100000 Like, that's nothing. I, I, I mean, they really travel all the way across the country to split $500,000 in some Montana bank. I, I was really surprised at how little amount there was. And then I think I also mentioned, you know, when it comes to the plot holes, like, the first act, like, the pl- I, I like the setup. You got, it, it's a great idea. And again, we'll get into this one with our reviews. The idea is strong, but then it just it just doesn't go anywhere. Like, were you bored at all during that first act, Chad? Because we're just you're just sort of waiting for okay, Corbin Brinson's in jail, and now the guys are in this house in Montana. Now what? And it's just I guess it's sort of supposed to be character development, but I was found myself really bored until something actually happened, and it took a while. Yeah, I, f- I feel the plot of this is really disjointed, and you know, stop me if you've heard this before. One or two rewrites probably would have really helped this film. Oh, and yeah. and I think it was just, like you said, the idea is interesting. Can take Corbin Burnson's character completely or take his role out of the film. Um, just have it be about the other bank robbers and how they're dealing with it. And there's a good premise there, but you've mentioned it. The cops are just bumbling idiots. They don't really add anything to this film. They take away. And I think if you strengthen those characters you've got a chance at a good comedy or, or a good action film, depending on which way you want to go. But this one just did yeah. not. And I think it, you know, I don't know the director, if he just wanted to shoot a movie in his home, t- you know, where he was living. And so he's like, okay, what's the quickest and easiest script I can, I can churn out. Yeah. But I think it, um, yeah. He probably went to the bank. He probably went to the bank one day in his town and was depositing mm. a check. And he was like, huh, I wonder if somebody could, could rob mm. this place or something to that effect. Yeah. I mean, that's that's my concluding thought right there is that it was a, it's a fantastic cast and they're wasted with a dumb script. Yeah. You know, I, I, I thought it was so funny that you said the exact same thing that I did when we were texting each other mm. when we watched the movie is that there's a great movie there. The premise is strong, mm. but the execution is absolutely horrible. And uh, my first I, the thought, one of the thoughts I had was I can't decide if we want them to get away with it or not. Mm. Like, you know, sometimes when you watch see heist movies, you find yourself cheering for the criminals but then sometimes you're, you're, are you cheering for the cop? Like when you watch Heat, are you cheering for Pacino or are you cheering for De Niro? Um, whereas with this one, it's like both of them are just so dumb that you just do they want to get away with it? And then the the ending, I'm not going to give away the end, but the last scene at the end, you're just like, oh, that's just a perfect ending for this dumb movie. Like it, it's just like it's like it tries to have a cute wrap, tries like tie it back to the beginning of the movie, almost like Three Fugitives did. But yeah, I I, I got nothing. It was, if any other f- final thoughts on the film, Jeff? Uh, no, I think we've said it. Once we get to the reviews, they're going to back up pretty much everything we've already said. Yeah. Uh, one more thing. Again, we like to, I like to look at what I call the touchstone touch. Again, we talked about it many times. How is this film not a Disney film? Well, you know, the cops and criminals are, are certainly Disney-fied, as I like to call them. But again, all that language. And again, we can, maybe we can say it right now, Chad. Why, why is this film R-rated, but, but Three Fugitives was PG-13? I, I mean, is it just because they had, a, you know, a few more curse words? I don't, like you said, Three Fugitives are probably worse because it has it has a kid in it. Mm. So you want it to be 
more kid friendly, and yet there's a lot. There's so many more curse words in that movie as well. So and maybe it's the uh, number of f bombs. I don't know. I would have to go back I, and rewatch each one, and I don't think I'm going to do that anytime soon. So yeah, I, I, it's one of the weird things that when, when it comes to deciphering between PG-13 and R's, which words you can use the f mm. word, the s word. Which word can you get away with? And it seems like I think I thought there was a list somewhere that's like you get one of these in a movie versus you know I think it's uh, one f bomb in a PG-13. Yeah, and I, I noticed uh, we recently watched one of the next Touchdown movies, which is Turner and Hooch, and there is one F-bomb, and it has no – like, why is it even in there? Like, it, there's, it, there's, there's no cursing at all in that movie, and yet Tom Hanks drops an F-bomb in the middle of a conversation. You're like, huh? And I wonder if it was just enough – they knew their platform to mm-hmm. stay within the PG-13. Um, I thought I always like to do, I like to kick it over to Chad now to give us some of the reviews in the film, and I'm curious to see if they were – if they were glowing or not so positive. Well, I was kind of surprised that I actually found three reviews for this film because the last few shows that we've done, I haven't been able to come up with any good reviews. But So let's just start the New York Times review. Disorganized crime combines the old bank heist genre with the chestnut about bumbling detectives who let a suspect escape from their custody. It is possible theoretically to create fresh twists on, this creaky, on those creaky rituals but disorganized crime never gets more clever than its title. Roger Ebert said, too many chase scenes, too many scenes of people falling in mud and manure, not enough scenes about the bank heist, which we agree with. Mm-hmm. And the Buffalo News, and this one will tie into your touchstone touch, I think. An effort was made to come up with some vaguely new kinds of slapstick, but except for the street language, it's exactly like the kind of innocent and even childish comedy the Disney folks used to come up with in their Son of Flubber and Herbie the Love Bug era. Yeah. This could have been a Disney movie, I, yeah. right? You know, <laughs> as, as, as sort of, I mean, again, some of it might have been a little lowbrow, but yeah, mm. I see no reason why this wasn't uh, a Disney movie other than shoehorning in all those curse words. Um, so we go to our reviews. We, I, we've, we've kind of alluded to it, but on a scale of one to 10, I, I, I couldn't give it anything higher than a four. Again, I, I thought it was a great ensemble, but it's, it's just such an awful script. Uh, Chad, where do you come down? Well, I, I have two bits of trivia. I just want to throw in real quick about two members of the cast uh, on our other show that Mike and I do called wonder why a few episodes. I think it, was the Georgia Satellites episode we talked about Farm Aid and the performers who have performed there that we were not aware of. I found out that Lou Diamond Phillips performed at Farm Aid 1993. Shockingly, okay. he did not do La Bamba. He uh, did some other song that I was not familiar with. And then did you know that Fred Gwynn has wrote and illustrated a bunch of children's books? I did not. Yeah, the two of the titles that I have here are A Chocolate Moose for Dinner and The King Who Reigned. So these seem like uh, punny titles and punny stories, which I'd be curious to read. But yeah, who knew? Herman Munster, author extraordinaire. But I'm with you. I'm going to go with a four on this. I love the cast. I would love to see them, uh, with the exception of Fred Gwynn today. I don't think he would be up for it. But I would like to see them back together in another film. And uh, yeah, it's just so it was so disappointing to watch this film and and see it go nowhere because I had high hopes, but. Yeah, same here. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, like, and again, we, we, I always like to see if does the film have potential to be have a sequel or be remade. And I don't know. I have to go back and look through all of our old episodes. But this is mm. one of the first times where I, I would say, yes, yeah. please remake this. <laughs> you know, take this idea, flesh it out a little bit, make the cops not such bumbling idiots. You know, it, it could be a really solid movie. I just mm. ah, 
such a missed opportunity. Um, okay, trivia standpoint. This seems to always come up a lot in our trivia, but these movies have so many alternate titles that they work on. Uh, Frank uh, Corbin Brinson's character's name is Salazar. So the alternate titles, three of the titles had his name in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Message from Salazar, Waiting for Salazar, and also Where's Salazar. One of, the other, one of the other titles that they had was just Bank Job. So this organized crime is a good one. It's a, it's a clever pun on the, on the term organized crime, I guess. Uh, Fred Gwynn, I found out, later revealed that he had a heart attack during one of the scenes in the film in which his character is experiencing heart problems. Uh, they kept rolling the cameras, and the director kept the footage in the finished film. They would call 911, and Fred spent a few days in the hospital before coming back to complete his scenes. So, wow, method actor. Um, Lou Diamond Phillips, we, we talk about how when you shoot on location and it kept the, the cost down, they, I'm sure they wanted to they have people do their own stunts, had they have extras using their own cars, that whole thing. Supposedly, Lou, Lou Diamond Phillips gave an interview where he said that there's a stunt where his character is dragged underneath a car, and he said that he himself did that, and he had scratches on his back for, for weeks. Um, William Russ who was actually from New York City, he didn't know how to drive a car because he was from New York. So they had to use a stunt driver for every shot of him driving, except for some of the close-ups. And then I read that Ed O'Neill, there's a scene where Ed O'Neill has to walk across a river. He did it himself. No stunt double. He had he was, it was freezing cold water. But yeah, he had he did it himself. Um, now, this I thought was interesting. They said while, while they were filming in Montana, the Teamsters Union picketed because they were using non-union residents as transportation drivers. Which, that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's that double-edged sword you deal with sometimes where if you say, we want to film on location and kick some money in the local economy and give those people some work, but then you have to deal with unions. So what are the odds that there's going to be members of these unions in these faraway locations when you're shooting your movies? And I guess in 1989, it wasn't that common. Uh, I read that supposedly the producers actually offered the jobs to the Teamsters first, and they turned it down, which makes me wonder if they offered under the scale rates um, I did a movie one time years ago where I had to find a I was tasked with finding a production manager and they gave me a list and said, call cold, call these people and ask if they want to be in the movie. And I had a few that that said, I can't do it because you're not offering enough for my union rates. And I, I would be not, not kicked out of the union, but I would get in trouble with the union if I took it. So, yeah, unions is it's kind of weird when it comes to film stuff. Now, we talk about Point Axton. You know, he's not in the movie very often, but. He uh, he says that he lo- supposedly he loved filming in Montana so much that he bought property property there and spent most of the rest of his life living in Montana. Uh, we mentioned that the director Jim Koof he had just bought a house in Montana with his with his wife and many of the cars that are used in the film belonged to to him or his family members and the family members also appear in the film. It was like oh that was Jim Koof's father in law or that was his you know just a, a way to kind of keep the cost down. Uh, now this is one of the ones I did a little bit of extra digging. To kind of piece this one together, Jim Koof was married to a woman named Marie. Marie was his assistant on the movies Miracles and Stakeout. She appears in Disorganized Crime. She is Wanda the bank teller, and she gets an associate producer credit on the film. You'll notice that when the t- every time you see Wanda, she's sitting down behind the bank or behind, behind a desk as a teller. Well, I found out later that she was pregnant and gave birth during the production of the film. What's what's weird, the the weird postscript to this is that uh, Jim Koof and Marie would end up divorcing and Jim Koof married Lynn Bigelow, who was the producer on Disorganized Crime. (laughs) So she had been producing. She had worked with him before. And yeah, so it's, I mean, a little incestuous in that regard. And of course, the final note I have is that the world premiere for the film was held a week before the film was released in Hamilton, Montana, which was the main 
town where they shot it. And I guess they said the turnout was incredible. All these people wanted to see how their town looked on screen. Uh, several of the actors were in attendance, including Jim Koof and Lynn Bigelow as well. Uh, uh, we look at the soundtrack of the film. There wasn't really an official soundtrack, but this blew my mind because I mm -hmm. saw it in the credits and confirmed it on IMDb. There are two songs in the soundtrack of this film that were written and performed by Charles Fleischer. And I mean, unless he had a relationship coming out of Roger Rabbit, I don't know of him as being a recording artist. I, I listened to both of the songs today on YouTube, and they're, they're from Charles Fleischer's official YouTube account, where he just put them up himself and said, oh, yeah, I wrote a couple songs back in the late 80s. And yet they got squeezed into this movie. I, I, don't, I don't remember them. I, I think I can't remember any scenes from the film. Like I always try to put, put a song at the beginning of our episodes that reminds me of a scene from the film. I do not remember music playing in any of these scenes. Yes. Uh, well, let's look at the box office, but oof, maybe we shouldn't. Um, it opens at number six with 2.8 million. The number one movie that week was Major League with Corbin Bernson. It had made $7 million. The other films that opened against Disorganized Crime were Say Anything and She's Out of Control. In its second week, it dropped all the way to number nine with the releases of Red Scorpion, a movie called See You in the Morning, which I'm not overly familiar with, uh, Speed Zone by with Orion, and the um, first place finisher was the Fred Gwynn movie, Pet Cemetery. The falls, uh, this organized crime falls off the charts after about three weeks. It only makes $7.7 million. We'll discuss it on our year in review show, but this is the lowest grossing Disney film, not just touched on. It's the lowest grossing Disney film of 1989, this organized crime. Um, I always like to look and see if there's any awards consideration. Yeah, that's that's not going to be the case here. Um, and then do we have any connections? I couldn't, you know, considering Fred Gwynn was in the movie, still could not find any connection with Alfred Hitchcock or James Bond. Um, personal connection. Yeah, this we've got several of these. Uh, I actually met Corbin Bernson at the Aero Theater in Santa Monica. This was back in 2012 at a screening of Major League. Got him to autograph my copy of the film. Uh, I think we mentioned it on our Stakeout episode, but John Batham, the executive producer of this film, I met him at the Egyptian Theater. He signed my copy of Saturday Night Fever. Um, Chad and I, I believe, have both attended, during our time working at 20th Century Fox, we both attended table reads for the sitcom Modern Family with Ed O'Neill. I, I would love to have gone up and met him to talk about his work in this movie or Ford Fairlane rather than just Ford, uh, rather than just uh, Married with Children. Chad, you've been to a Modern Family table read, right, or no? I have not. You I did. did. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. I did, uh, you know, I would see the cast outside of their studio, but I yes. never saw Ed O'Neill or Sofia Vergara. Saw everyone yeah. else except those two. I know, it's funny. Eight years spent working at Fox, and I saw every cast member from Modern Family multiple times. I saw Ed O'Neill one time, and he was on the back of a golf cart just waving at people as it was driving him around. And then remind me again, I'll, I'll, the last personal connection I have is, Chad, I believe you met Daniel Roebuck at the Aero Theater, and he wasn't there for a Q&A. He was just in the audience, right? Yeah, so first off, I have to. you mentioned some of Daniel Roebuck's films prior to this. You left out the classic... I believe it's directed by Penelope Spheris, the movie Dudes with John Cryer, I believe, okay. and Daniel Robach, who, yeah, that's an interesting film. But yes, my first trip to the Arrow, we went to a, I believe it was the first one, where we went to a screening of The Monster Squad with a Q&A with the cast and director, and Daniel Robach was just there in the audience, and I went up and you know said I'm a big fan, and he said, like, oh, you know. Thank you. And, you know, I, I come to the Arrow quite a bit. That was in 2007. 
I have not seen Daniel Roebuck at the Arrow since then. And I will tell our listeners for a, for, for a while there, Chad and I would go to this theater in Santa Monica. It was a wonderful theater, uh, a non-for-profit, lots of great Q&As with, with stars. And after that experience with Daniel Roebuck, Chad would bring his DVD copy of River's <laughs> Edge with him every time we went there, hoping we'd bump into him. And we never yeah. did. Never did. So, Daniel, <laughs> if you're did. out there, um, thanks, I guess, for getting my hopes up. But, uh, yeah, and I don't know what he's doing now. I, I'm sure he's still acting, but I have not seen him. But I do recommend watching Dudes. Okay. Hopefully it's better than, better, better than disorganized crime, which uh, we can move on from now. Small town, so we're going to need a car that doesn't stick out. Something nobody's going to recognize right away. Buick, Chevy. Light color so I can paint it. Like an eight, we're going to need the speed. Sounds just like the one Nick wrecked. Yeah, yeah, I know. Don't remind me. That car was perfect. The only reason I'm going through with this is so I can kick Nick's ass after we get the money. Then I'm going to run over him with the new car. Good to have a goal in life. That crime may have been disorganized, but I'll tell you what's not disorganized. Boarding school. That follows a very strict, rigid regimen. And as we'll see in our next film, Robin Williams finds out the hard way that you don't mess with tradition. This is Dead Poet Society. From Touchstone Pictures, John Keating wasn't your average English teacher. I like Byron. I give him a 42, but I can't dance to him. To the administration, he was a rebel. I'm hearing rumors about some unorthodox teaching methods. To parents, he was a threat. Who put you up to it? Was it this Mr. Keating? But to his students, he was an inspiration. Seize the day. I'm going to do it! That made their lives extraordinary. Robin Williams, Dead Poet Society, rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you. Check newspaper for showtime. Yes, it was released on June 2nd of 1989. Uh, before we get too far into this, I will say um, we've been doing this show for a few, several months now. It's easy to find information on some of the movies. It can be harder on other ones. This was one of the hardest because there is so much out there. I have not seen this much information since. I think Ro Roger Rabbit was the only other one that we've done where I, I could have spent weeks just reading so many interviews and articles some of it did get redundant, but yeah, there's just so much out there, and I only hope that I can encompass it as best as I can in this discussion. Uh, well, I guess it begins and ends with, with the writer. His name is Tom Shulman. He had based the script for the film on his experiences in a boarding school in Nashville, Tennessee. Supposedly, many of the, many of the characters are loosely based on his classmates. I read that some of his classmates actually contacted Tom to ask if they were the one, if they were being depicted in some capacity. Um, he only had two prior writing credits. Both of them were story credits. I read that he said that they were so different. By the time they made it onto this TV screen, they were so different than what he had written. He didn't recognize them. These were ABC TV movies. Uh, the first was 1986's movie The Gladiator, which had a cast, great cast, Ken Wall, Nancy Allen, Robert Culp, Brian Robbins, who's the director now. Rick Dees is in this movie. Uh, and it was directed by Abel Ferrara, of course, who did Bad Lieutenant and King of New York. Uh, and then the other movie was 1988's A Father's Revenge. And another great cast, Brian Dennehy, Ron Silver, Joanna Cassidy, speaking of Roger Rabbit. And that film was directed by John Hertzfeld, who had done Two Days in the Valley and 15 Minutes. Chad and I, I think you, we, I was at a screening and got to see him speak. Were you at the Two Days in the Valley screening with us? I right? was not. No? Nope. That was okay. That was Charlie's Theron and and uh, yeah, and John Hertzfeld. 
But uh, yeah, so interesting that these two random ABC TV movies, TV movies would have that much star power in them. Uh, Tom Schulman's script for Dead Poets Society was rejected by every studio he claimed, including Disney, before a producer named Stephen Haft circulated the script around Hollywood to agents and various actors and directors became interested. Um, at that point, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who I found out was Stephen Haft's prep school classmate, he, Katzenberg makes a formal offer to acquire the script. Now, again, the, there's so much trivia on. I don't know what the timeline is. I would really need to hear it from the people involved because I'm going to jump around a little bit because I don't know what came where. Because it seems like every article I've read, it's, it contradicts itself. But I did read that supposedly at one point, Dustin Hoffman was attached to star and direct this movie. It was going to be his directorial debut. But the, the director that ended up getting hired was Jeff Canoe. And again, for Touchstone fans, that should sound familiar. He directed Tough Guys in 1986. Of course, he also was uh, made famous when he did Revenge of the Nerds back in 1984. So when Jeff Canoe was the director of the film, he wanted Liam Neeson to play the lead role of John Keating, the English professor. But Disney was not too keen on that, and they wanted Robin Williams. So they moved forward with Robin Williams in the lead role. Now, you notice how I phrased that. They moved forward with him in the lead role. Okay. And now we talked about Robin Williams on our Good Morning Vietnam episode. I looked it up. The only movie that he had done between Good Morning Vietnam and Dead Poets Society was The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And it was just a cameo role. And he used it as a fake name because I was watching an interview with him today where he said he didn't he didn't want to get like he said there was a lot of issues with the production and Terry Gilliam. And he just didn't want to, them to use his name to kind of sell the film because he, he just he wanted to just do a favor and be as anonymous as he could. Mm -hmm. Uh, interestingly enough, Robin Williams starred in a, I think it was for public television, a TV movie in 1986 called Seize the Day, which is sort of the theme of this movie. Okay, now here's where, again, lots of nebulous information. I try, I was going to tell you, I tried to get to the bottom of this, and maybe we'll get to this, figure this out later. But originally, the Dead Poets Society was going to film outside of Atlanta, Georgia. But the first day of filming was an absolute disaster. Okay, according to Tom Sherman, this is a quote. He said, quote, the studio wanted Robin Williams, but Rob Robin wouldn't say no, but he wouldn't say yes to working with Jeff Canoe. They prepped the movie, built the sets, and Robin just didn't show up for the first day, end quote. So they canceled the production and burned the sets. I, again, I, I, it's one of those, there's a lot of articles written about like 10 things you didn't know about Dead Poets Society, and that one always comes up first. Uh, Tom Schulman went on to say that, that Robin never said he would agree to the movie, but Disney kept moving forward to try to put pressure on him. And so like, I, that's so, but I would love to hear their side of the story. And like, when did Robin Williams officially sign on? Because they were shooting it with the movie, shooting the movie in a place that probably wouldn't, it wasn't a good idea. And with a director that he didn't want to work with. And yet they said, Oh, let's just do it and hope that he falls in line, I guess. Um, so when Jeff Canoe leaves the project, another undamed director came on board. Tom Schulman wouldn't reveal the name of the director. He kept it close to the vest, but then Disney replaced that replacement director and then production didn't start again until Peter Weir, the Australian director, became available. He was very popular in Australian cinema and gained a lot of international acclaim with the 1981 film Gallipoli, which was a movie with Mad Max that made Mel Gibson into a star. He followed that with The Year of Living Dangerously, also starring Mel Gibson. And then he moved to Hollywood and directed two critically acclaimed films, 1985's Witness and 1986's The Mosquito Coast. The, both those films starred Harrison Ford, If you, just in case you're curious. Witness is still the only film in which Harrison Ford got an Oscar nomination. 
And Peter Weir got nominated for Best Director Oscar for Witness as well. Uh, Weir was actually in talks with Jeffrey Katzenberg around that time to direct Green Card, which will come out in 1990. But when the production got pushed back because Gerard Depardieu wasn't available, then Katzenberg said, oh, well, we have this other script. Would you like to come do Dead Poet Society? And that's kind of where we get going. From that point on, the production of the film moves from Georgia to Delaware because Peter Weir wanted to use snow, wanted to have it set in like a wintry setting. And it would have been very difficult to obviously have snow in Georgia. Uh, the movie was filmed at St. Andrew's School in Middletown, Delaware. And they specifically filmed between the Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays so that it wouldn't disrupt the school schedule. I read on a, a Delaware website that they claim that this is the first major feature film to be shot entirely in Delaware. And it sucks because I was just there about a year ago driving through. I was at the state capitol and we were driving up to Pennsylvania and I went past Middletown. Like I, I told my wife, I said, if we're ever in that area now, I'm going to have to stop because I want to see this school. I'm sure it looks just the same as it does for Dead Poets Society. Um, once again, so many cl conflicting reports when it comes to the cast. Um, I, I heard that Mel Gibson was interested, but then he demanded too much money. And so Disney said no. Uh, Mickey Rourke supposedly was involved, but then he demanded some script changes and it all fell through. So once Peter Weir came on board, Robin Williams was interested and now we're good to go. Uh, the rest of the cast, uh, I, I, I love the fact that Norman Lloyd is in this film. He plays the headmaster, headmaster Nolan. Um, he, has a, he had a very long acting career going back to stage work with Orson Welles in the late 1930s. I thought I could have sworn Norman Lloyd was in Citizen Kane, but supposedly he moved to Hollywood when Orson Welles took his theater troupe there and they were going to do one film project. I believe it was uh, the Heart of Darkness, the Joseph Conrad novel. That fell apart. And when that did, Norman Lloyd went back to New York and the rest of Orson Welles' theater troupe stayed in L.A. for his next project, which wound up being Citizen Kane. And Norman Lloyd had said, you know, I regret not doing that. But when he went back to New York, he began a long friendship with Alfred Hitchcock and appeared in um, some a couple of his movies as well as his TV show and was a producer as well. Um, he would go on to do six seasons of St. Elsewhere. He was on the whole the run of the series, I believe. I, I was surprised to see that. Unless I'm totally off on how long that show was on the air. Uh, I read that he, when he was approached to do the movie, he didn't want to have to audition because he just thought that, well, I was in St. Elsewhere. You can, you can see that. I, I, I don't need to audition. But then Peter Weir said that they never got St. Elsewhere down in Australia. And so Norman Lloyd said, sure, okay, I'll audition. He got the part, no problem. Um, Kurtwood Smith is also in the film. Uh, I, I'm a big fan. He'd been working throughout the entire decades of the 80s, mostly bit parts and random movies and TV shows. He was in, I don't know, he was in Staying Alive, the uh, John Travolta movie. He was in episodes of The A-Team and Rip, Riptide, Newhart, 21 Jump Street, he was in the North and South two, Book 2 miniseries. Um, of course, his film career really takes off in 1987 with RoboCop, oh, one of the great villains of all time, Clarence Boddicker. And he was also in Rambo 3. I've never actually seen that one. His last film role before Dead, po Dead Poet Society was also from 1989. It's a film called True Believer. Uh, you notice I left out most of the, the, the boys from the cast because they had all had very few film roles. Um, Robert Sean Leonard, had been in uh, Manhattan Project and a movie called My Best Friend is a Vampire. Ethan Hawke had only done the ex had only done Explorers, and Josh Charles had only been in Hairspray. Um, the actors who played the characters of Pitts and Meeks were making their film debuts. So I mean, yeah, it's just there's a lot going on in this movie. I've talked a lot. Chad, we'll we'll go to you. Give me a positive from Dead Poets Society. Well, you I'll just. 
piggyback off of what you've said for the last three or four minutes, the cast, you know, kind of tying in with disorganized crime. This is a solid cast who I think each character, you don't see the person behind the character. You actually see a real character, even though, Mm -hmm. you know, Kurtwood Smith, especially watching it now, you're going to recognize him from that 70s show. Robin Williams is going to be Robin Williams, but they embody these characters so well that the, the acting is very top notch in this film. Yeah. And like you said, Kurtwood Smith and even like I mentioned, Norman Lloyd, they, you know, the first half of the movie, there's, you're trying to figure out like who is going to be the antagonist. There has to be somebody. And Norman Lloyd plays the headmaster. He's not totally overbearing, you know, and Kurtwood Smith they're they're Both of them are, are excellent without going over the top as sort of quote unquote villains. You know, I think we talked about it way back on our first episode when we talk about with country, you know, there's a mm-hmm. character in that movie who's, who works at the bank and you're supposed to think he's the villain because he's going to be foreclosing on the house. But then you also wonder like wh- where he's stuck in the middle, you know, like he's, mm-hmm. he, he's, he doesn't want to be that bad, but he has to, because there's something else going on at the bank. And like with uh, Norman Lloyd, like I could see, Oh, he's, he's the evil headmaster. And you're like, well, no, he has a duty to the other parents in that school to uphold the best you know, sense mm. of values for these kids. And even Kurtwood Smith's character, who plays Robert Sean Leonard's sort of very overbearing father. But at the same time, you're like, maybe that's what guys in the 50s, mm-hmm. in late 1950s were like, you know, especially with how they grew up. So you, you don't feel like they're, they're bad without being so like, I always talk about like twirling the mustache, like the snidely whiplash evil villains. Um, they, are, they, are, they are so good. Robin Williams, of course, is terrific. Um, like you said, the, the, the ensemble cast is great because you have so many actors like in early roles, these young actors, and yet they're so they're really, really strong. There's one scene in particular that just gives me chills, and it's the scene where Robin Williams and Ethan Hawke, and he's doing the whole thing with the barbaric yawp. I've seen that in a lot of different clip shows, and it's just it's such a stirring scene that you never forget. Hmm. Now, for those of you who don't know, a yawp is a loud cry or yell. Now, Todd... I would like you to give us a demonstration of a barbaric yawp. <laughs> come on, you can't yawp sitting down. Let's go. Come on, up. Gotta get in yawping stance. Uh, a yawp. No, not just a yawp. A barbaric yawp. Yawp. Come on, louder. Yawp. Oh, that's a mouse. Come on, louder. Yawp. Oh, good God, boy, yell like yawp. a man. There it is. You see, you have a barbarian in you after all. Now, you don't get away that easy. Picture Uncle Walt up there. What does he remind you of? Don't think. Answer. Go on. A, a, a madman. What kind of madman? Don't think about it. Just answer again. A crazy madman. Oh, you can do better than that. Free up your mind. Use your imagination. Say the first thing that pops into your head, even if it's total gibberish. Go on. Uh, go on. Uh, a sweaty tooth madman. Good God, boy. There's a poet in you after all. There. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Close them. Now, describe what you see. Uh... I, I close my eyes. Yes. Uh, and this image floats beside me. The sweaty tooth madman. The sweaty tooth madman with a stare that pounds my brain. Oh, that's excellent. Now give him action. Make him do something. His hands reach out and choke me. That's wonderful, wonderful. And all the time he's mumbling. What's he mumbling? Uh, mumbling truth. Yeah, yeah. Truth like, like a blanket that always leaves your feet cold. Forget them, forget them. Stay with the blanket. Tell me about that blanket. You, 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 you push it, stretch it. It'll never be enough. You kick at it, beat it, it'll never cover any of us. From the moment we enter crime to, to the moment we leave dying, it'll just cover your face as you wail and cry and scream. I thought the script is incredible because 
it gives a chance for every character to be nicely developed and get their moment to shine where they but like they like each have a unique uh, personality, which I think is so difficult to do when you make a movie about the conformity of boarding school. Like, you know, you have one 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 kid that's like going to go into drama and has the overbearing dad. You have one guy who's in love with the with the girl and there's an obstacle there, you know, and then you have another guy who's kind of come up, come up, coming out of his shyness. Right. And then you have the other guy who's who's like who doesn't want to narc on the teacher, but then he feels like a duty. So, yeah, they, I thought they did a really good job of fleshing out those characters in that regard. Yeah. And then lastly, I, I think from a positive standpoint, I just I think this movie is incredibly inspirational. And I, and I I wonder, like, did anyone see this movie and then go into teaching after mm-hmm. this? You know, like, did any did any teenage boy see this movie and then get up the nerve to ask a girl out, like Josh Charles's character, who has one of the greatest movie character names ever, Knocked Over Street. <laughs> that should be a band name or something. Um, but like, and I love that 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 whole subplot with Knox and and Chris. Is that her name? The girl that he has a crush on. And it's like the I feel like the whole point of the movie is not that he gets the girl; it's that he has the courage to ask. And I think there's a moment where when he first makes his play and she says no, and he goes back to the school. And they ask him what happened, and he's just grinning because he's like, "I did it. I asked her. He did, it, is, it doesn't even matter if he got the girl. It's that he he asked her, and I like that. Like the idea of movies should inspire you. And I guess we'll bring this. We'll, we'll, go, we'll go into that a little more detail in our trivia section. But yeah, I find the film. I find the film to be incredibly inspirational. But then I'm also not as cynical as some of the other co-hosts on this podcast. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, do you? I mean. I can shower more superlatives on this film, but I'm about done. Do you have any other positives in this film before you go into the negatives? I'll let you do both. Um, no, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think this is an uplifting and positive film. Um, I'm just going to say there was a quote that I took from the movie, and I forgot to uh, attribute who says it. But there's a quote that says, I'm not a cynic, I'm a realist. And that's how I feel about my persona, even though I claim to be a cynic and I named my you know, original podcast and my podcasting network, the Positive Cynicism Podcast. But yeah, I, I mean, I like this film. I don't want to bring this film down. And so I, the only thing I can say, you know, as, as another positive that I'll give this is it's very well shot. And it's, you know, going, okay, I think that's the theme of both of the films that we have on this episode. Good cast, good cinematography, and... You know, I am not that familiar with Peter Weir's stuff, but I think he handled the direction of this film very well. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And, and again, the the cast of characters. I, I just I'm going to go back to that. Like the for a group of relative unknowns, and I know that um, this may come up in your trivia, but they shot the film in sequence to try to yeah. build that bonding. You know, as the film goes along, and I think it worked perfectly for for what they tried to capture. Yeah, and you could tell they're probably friends. Like, there's a great. Yeah. I'll, I'll see if I can post it on our Twitter account. But uh, one of the actors, Dylan Cussman, who played Cameron, the, the uh, redheaded kid, he had a video camera at the time they were filming it. And so during they were shot shooting the movie in Delaware, and they took a break from filming it because five of the actors in the movie all auditioned for the same role in the movie, the Jack Lemmon movie Dad. Mm-hmm. So they all, they all had to go to New York City and audition at the same time, and so. Seven of the boys, two of them tagged along. Seven of them all take the train into New York City, and 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 there's this camcorder. They have a whole movie. They're following him around as five of the actors read and watching them kind of psych each other up and and motivate each other and kind of cheering cheering each other on. 
and and like I said, I another good clip I watched today was Robin Williams was on the um, Phil Donahue show, and six of the of the of the cast of the boys are there in attendance to cheer him on as well. And Phil Donahue brings the microphone over and interviews each one of them, and it's fascinating where he's like. Josh Charles, how old are you? And he's like, I'm 17. And Ethan Hawke is like, I'm 18. And you're like, oh my god, these kids. And they're just they're just there to support Robin Williams. And I believe they're all many of them are still friends. Again, we there's, I got some more to put on that when we get to it. But uh, okay, I, I had a hard time finding negatives. But again, I'm I I view this as a very uplifting movie, and I was very touched by it. So I'll let you start, Chad. What were some of the negatives, if you had any? Well, and I'm not. I don't want to make this so much as a negative. I think this is more of a age thing. So if you ask me to name my favorite books, I would say the top two books are Catcher in the Rye and Rage by Richard Bachman, a.k.a. Stephen King. Mm -hmm. Both of those books I read when I was 17 or 18. And I immediately, because of part of my cynical nature, and at the age that I read them, I've identified mainly with the Holden Caulfield Caulfield character as well as the uh, Charlie character from Rage. If I go back, if I just read those books, you know, in the last couple of years, would I have had that same attachment? That's how I feel about Goodwill. I keep wanting to say Goodwill Hunting. It's Dead Poet Society. It's, Mm -hmm. I like the movie. And when I saw it back in, you know, when I was 15, 16 years old, like you said, very, very emotional, very uplifting and and persuasive and and motivating. But watching it now, I'm just like I found it to be a little cheesy and a little um it's um shallow. It's the word I'm looking for. I just found it very simplistic. Okay. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things I when I looked up the movie on my Leonard Malton video mm-hmm. guide, I always like to flip through that and the term that they used was was dramatically obvious yeah and that's why they, they gave i think three out of four stars and that was the only demerit that it had oh, there's a boarding school term for you demerit <laughs> um but they said it dramatically obvious i'm like yeah you kind of have an idea of where it's going once it gets toward the end i mean there's 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 one part that you maybe you don't expect but otherwise yeah, yeah that's it it can be not i want to say contrived because i feel like we talk about this idea of oh well this movie is it's it's been done before but then you realize wait a minute this movie came out 30 years ago we're we're saying it's been done before because we're referring to the movies that copied it, right? Like, and I, I and I'm wondering if like I feel like this movie, and I don't count this as a negative sort of for the film, but I, I did see. I guess it spawned a lot of copycat films with that sort of teacher, you know, uplifting. Like I think Disney even did Mr. Holland's Opus hmm. a few years later, you know, which is f- so funny that, that that almost seems like a touchstone movie. I think it might have been a Hollywood picture, but um, no, you know, or like. Emperor's Club with Kevin Klein, or yeah. Finding Force. So there's always, you know, even the what was the Dangerous Ground, you know, there's always the teacher that's going to help. Even Stand and Deliver came out the same year, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And I think or, that that's why looking at it now and reviewing it, look through the eyes of today instead of, you know, when I'd first seen it. And, and I, I mentioned I, I just watched School Ties, you know, a week after watching this because it put me in the mood to watch that. And I think School Ties is a much better, uh, deeper film. And but then again, I also was surprised to watch that again and realize how much how anti-Semitic apparently the 1950s were in America. So sure, that sure. shocked me. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm gonna you know my rating of this film based on the viewing today is probably a five. It's good, but I don't see myself watching it again. Oh wow! Yeah, 
Ooh, those fighting <laughs> words right there, yeah. No, I mean, I was splitting hairs trying to find negatives, and the only other one I could think of was um, I didn't like the score. The score was okay. Mm. Like, I didn't like, there's a lot of the atonal music and the bagpipes. I, I wonder if they could have been used some more of the upbeat music of that era, like Stranded in the Jungle. I mean, that scene mm. is the scene when Knox goes to the party at the Danbury's house, and, uh, and, and it's, it's so much more, I don't know, it's upbeat. I, I wish they could have probably worked some of that in. But, but yeah, like, I, I, if you want, you want to go on a scale of one to ten, I'm going to give this the nine. Mm-hmm. I, I really, I really think it's a, it's a near perfect film, and it's one of the best that St- Touchstone ever made. I mean, it's a truly inspirational movie with a great cast and a great skip script. And I mean, I'm not exactly sure what else you could ask for. And I wonder, I, and I, it's something about like, it's all personal preference. And mm-hmm. you say five, I say nine. But I wonder sometimes it all has to do with what you see out of the movie. Like you said, I, sometimes I wonder about. Your, cyn- your your cynicism that can exist mm. and sometimes i as i the older that i get the more i find myself looking past that yeah now g- good i can i can dump on three fugitives <laughs> because that's sometimes i get okay this is trying too hard whereas this one yeah i i can appreciate it i i was like i said i was definitely moved i got chills during some of the scenes i just thoroughly loved it and i, I know that there is a Saturday Night Live sketch where they kind of spoof it with Fred Armisen and I, I almost I don't want to watch it because I'm like I'm sure they're just going to go for the low hanging fruit and and I'm like I don't I it's, I can't bring myself to to watch that I mean like I said they we talk about the touch don't touch they know the film is PG but it seems like I, I, this could have been a Disney movie I mean maybe the, some of the subject matter was a little bit off putting but I feel like if this would have been made after Pirates of the Caribbean National Treasure when Disney got confident to make their own PG and PG-13 movies, this would have totally been a Disney movie, mm-hmm. you know? And what's funny is, like, I really thought that it should have been a little bit longer. I would have liked to have seen another maybe 10, 15 minutes. But then I saw there's, I guess, 15 minutes were deleted out of the film, and they re-edited it back for the TV broadcast. Mm-hmm. And I watched those deleted scenes on YouTube, and they really slowed the movie <laughs> down. So I'm like, it's kind of like, I can't can I was, get what you want, you know? Because I'm like, give me, give me some more, but it has to be more of what I want, not more of what the filmmakers actually did the funny part is you know they made this movie today it'd be two hours and 45 minutes probably mm-hmm. right you know and it would be a little bit more over the top but do you have any any other final thoughts before we if, before i send you to to the reviews uh no and i think the review will you know i again it's a roger ebert review and i have this thing where i don't like agreeing with roger ebert for some reason i i think it's mainly because of a weird personal thing but uh, he kind of agrees with me. He just says, Dead Poet Society is not the worst of the countless recent movies about good kids and hidebound authoritarian older people. It may, however, be the most shameless in its attempt to pander to an adolescent audience. See, and again, that's, I think that's, Rod, I think Roger Ebert is a deeply cynical person as mm-hmm. well. Whenever you watch his show, it's like, I don't know. I, that's what I wonder about him. Cause I, I feel like any movies that are set in high school, like all those night, those late nineties high school movies, like mm-hmm. drive me crazy and 10 things I hate about you. He didn't like any of them. Yeah. And I'm just like, Oh, come on, man. That, those are, <laughs> those are fun movies. If you, if you think back to your time in high school. So right. I'm yeah. going to uh, real quick, I'm going to revise my rating because I think five is a little, low. I'm going to go seven. I'm going to bump okay. it up to seven because again, I do enjoy the film. I just think it is um, very basic. And it's regarding, but but again, it's it's a very well done movie. And as we've said, before, as I've said before, I, I, the the number system is kind of off because you know it, it it's about pr- uh, production and and entertainment value. And I was entertained, and this was good. I just I, I think again, 
being 30 years removed. And and maybe it's uh, part of the quarantine of being locked inside for so long and, <laughs> and, and not being productive. I'm like, ah, this just seems so so pandering. But, yeah, so I'm going to yeah. go seven. I'm going to revise it. So save oh, the hate tweets for later. Well, like I said, I mean, I think part of it, too, is I didn't see it until a few years ago. Mm. And I, I wonder, like, I just, I don't know. I find myself looking at movies differently now that, that came out back then. This is one of those ones that, I'm glad when I saw it in the theater a few years back, I saw it at the Arrow Cinema. Mm. We'll get into that in the personal connection section. But um, I'm so glad I saw it. And then I waited a few years and then I watched it again. I was so excited to watch it again. I'm not going to run out and buy it. But I could see if I waited 10 years and watched it again, I I would be just as moved as well. Yeah. Um, Sequel or remake potential. Um, I think the ending doesn't really leave a lot of room for a sequel. I mean, I guess I I really think it's perfect as it is. So Mm. please. Don't remake it. It's already been copycatted, as we mentioned. The question I had for you, Chad, was do you think this would make a good TV series? Yeah. No, I I mean, I think you could make it into a TV series, but I think I think you'd have to have a really strong cast. And, yeah. and again, you would have to make each of those characters very defined and give them a lot of depth and able to stretch out uh, good stories that aren't just you know, weekly, weekly plot points, I guess. I mean, I mentioned that too, because my first thought was, okay, yeah, could it be a good series? But then I remembered there was a TV show that has a very similar premise. It was on NBC back in 1996 and only aired 17 episodes before it was canceled. And it was called Mr. Rhodes. Hmm. And it's about, it's about this writer who wrote a novel and it was a failure. And now he has to go back to his old prep school to be a teacher and I enjoyed that. I, I remember watching that when it was on, and it was a little disappointing when it was canceled. Um, interestingly enough, there was an off-Broadway stage production of Dead Poet Society in 2016, and the John Keating role that Roger, Robin Williams had made so famous was done on stage by Jason Sudeikis from Saturday Night Live. And I thought it was interesting. The headmaster in the movie was played by David Garrison. And if you know that name, I remember it because he played Steve Darcy uh, or the next door neighbor on Married with Children. And I just, I'm thinking that's no, not Steve Darcy. It was Jefferson Darcy. It was Steve. God, I can't remember his last Steve, name. Now. Uh, Steve Darcy. Or, no, was it Rhodes? Was it Steve Rhodes? That's so funny. Steve Rhodes, Rhodes, yes. Jefferson yeah, Darcy, yeah. That's so funny. And I didn't realize David Garrison was, was a stage actor. He'd gotten a Tony nomination years before Married with Children. I just remember him as the, he's the first husband neighbor on Married with Children. So he played the headmaster in the stage version. It, it did not get the greatest reviews. It only ran for a few months. All I said, off-Broadway, and then off it went. Uh, the trivia, like I said, there's a lot of it. We'll, we'll, I can try to get through some of it. Um, as we mentioned, uh, Tom Schulman wrote this script based on his own experiences. The John Keating character was based on two of his own professors, Harold Clerman and Samuel Pickering. Uh, Clerman was, was taught act, was at an actor and director's lab, and Pickering was was Tom Schulman's, I think he said, sophomore English professor. Uh, Samuel Pickering became famous as a result of the movie, even though he downplayed all of the connections to Robin Williams. I, you know, there was a lot of notoriety that came out. It was almost like people wanted to write stories about, here's the real uh, Robin Williams. And it was like, no, no. He said he even claimed, Pickering even claimed that some of the antics that he did into the students were to entertain himself rather than inspire the students. And so he just really did not appreciate the fame um, in the original script of the movie. Spoiler: John Keating's the character is dying of cancer, 
which is why he continues to inspire the boys with the, you know, the seize the day. But Peter Weir dropped that from the film. And I, I, I got this great quote. Tom Schulman said that Peter Weir told him, quote, it's easy for anybody to stand up for someone who's dying. But if he's not dying, then we know they're standing up for what he's taught them and what they believe, end quote. And that makes more sense. We don't need to have it. It would have been just even more over the top. That would have taken you back down to your five <laughs> if the character was dying of cancer. Um, I did see that the producers estimated that 15% of Robin Williams' dialogue in the movie was improvised, especially that scene where he has, he does, he's talking about Shakespeare and he, he mentions a bunch of how other actors would sound if they, if they did Shakespeare lines and he goes into his slate of impressions. Um, uh, Norman Lloyd revealed that Robin Williams was going through a divorce at the time of the filming, so he wasn't his usual goofy self. He said there was no, quote, horsing around and none of the, quote, one-man show stuff. So, I mean, I, everything I've heard is Robin Williams was very serious when he was doing this role. Um, most recently, I saw Ethan Hawke has done a lot of interviews about the inter- anniversaries of the film and after Robin Williams had passed. And he said that he thought Robin Williams actually hated him because he, Ethan Hawke had came to the set with this, this uh, serious tone and Robin Williams wanted him to be more funny and, and kind of take it, not take it so serious. He said that uh, Ethan Hawke had just started taking classes at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. And so after the film wrapped... Robin Williams' agent called Ethan and said that Robin suggested that he sign Ethan to a deal. And that was Ethan's first agent, and he still represents him to this day. Uh, Lastly, I read that Lara Flynn Boyle was cast, but her scenes were all cut from the final film. And she was told, on the day of the premiere, she was told not to attend. (laughs) She wasn't going to be in the movie. And I did see her in those deleted scenes that I watched. And yeah, she kind of just slows the movie down a little bit. We don't need it. One other trivia bit that uh, I found a little bit amusing is Robert Sean Leonard. You know, in the movie, he he's the son of Kurt Wood uh, Smith. And he's like, you will be a doctor. You will be a doctor. And he doesn't want to be a doctor. He would go on to play a doctor on House MD for Fox as yeah. well. So Yeah, I, it's it's funny. When we started to watch the movie, I asked my wife, I was like, do you remember Robert Sean Leonard? And she was like, yeah, he's on House. Like, that's what, that's what she knows him from. I was thinking yeah. of all the other stuff that he's done. We recently watched the Kenneth Branagh Much Ado About Nothing, and he's really great in that. Like, he's one of the best parts of this mm-hmm. movie, hands down. Yeah, um, it's not really much of a soundtrack. It's a lot of classical music. Um, it was nice to hear "Let's Have a Party" by Wanda Jackson. I recognize her voice whenever that song came up. Like again, I wish they would have probably worked in some more of the period music of the era rather than just just the the classical stuff. Okay, so box office performance, it's pretty good. Uh, it open it only opens on eight screens. And it makes three hundred and forty thousand dollars in that its first weekend, which gives it a ridiculous per screen average of like forty two thousand dollars. Which is, I mean, again, you're lucky if you can get three, four, maybe five thousand per screen. This one had forty two. Uh, the other films that opened that same weekend, uh, we mentioned Lou Diamond Phillips, Renegades, uh, Vampire's Kiss had a limited opening with with Nicolas Cage and Chad. This would have been the Hulk Hogan <laughs> classic, No Holds Barred, opened the same weekend as as Dead Poets Society. And I'm sure that was number one at the box office, correct? Uh, you know, I don't have that in my notes. I'll have to look further. Uh, in, the, in, in its second week of release, it goes wider and it finishes third with $7.5 million behind uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And the first place finisher was Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. You know, we, I know we talked about it before, but it seems like the summer. What year did, did sequels and franchises really start to dominate the summer? And so we're starting to see it a little bit with the late 1980s. Uh, more or less, it spends the entire June and July in the top five or ten every week uh, against some other cl- classic movies of the 1989 summer, including uh, Ghostbusters 2, Batman, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Karate Kid 3, Lethal Weapon 2, Weekend at Bernie's, and the James Bond film License to Kill. 
Uh, Dead Poets Society continues in theaters until September, ultimately finishes with $95.9 million in the course of four months. Mm. It ends up number 10 on the year-end box office. Yet, once again, Touchstone is a top 10 movie at the box office. But I thought it was interesting. It finishes at the 10th highest box office total, but yet it never finishes first on any weekend of its release. Mm. Interesting. So good. Now, yeah, real quick. The, um, I was just going to say, the budget was only $16 million, so... $95 million and a $16 million budget. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty good. Did you see the clip from when Robin Williams was on uh, Letterman's show? And in, uh, instead of taking a clip to show, they just went across the street with their cameras to a screening of Dead Poet Society? I watched some of that. It was hard to watch some of the Robin Williams interviews because he's always just on. Manic, yeah. And it's a little bit manic. Yeah. And that one, yeah, it was like apparently they brought a camera across the street and the, the movie had just premiered that day, I think. I so, didn't watch the whole thing, but did you? Yeah. I, well, I watched that the segment pertaining to Dead Poet Society. And yeah, it was funny because they walk inside and, and the movie had just gotten over with. So you just see credits and Dave's like, oh, I was hoping we'd get to see a little bit of the film. We mistimed it. But then they tried talking to people. Um, and, and very few people like wanted to talk to them. But what I found yeah. interesting is as they're walking past the box office, there's a sign up, you know, Dead Post Society's got the times. The cost of admission in 1989 was $7, which I found to be kind of, and I, I realize it's New York, but I found that to Manhattan, be kind of steep. Yeah. yeah. I guess, yeah. So, no, I, 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 I'm surprised as well. But again, I'm sure people in New York have been paying those prices for a long yeah. time. Uh, well, from an awards consideration, well, yeah, this movie got some awards. And the Oscar goes to Tom Schulman for Dead Poet Society. Yes, it's, it won an Oscar. It had four Oscar nominations. It was the first Touchstone film to ever be nominated for Best Picture. Uh, it loses, of course, to Driving Miss Daisy. It also got nominations for Best Actor for Robin Williams. He loses to Daniel Day-Lewis in My Left Foot. And Peter Weir gets nominated for Best Director and loses to... Oliver Stone for Born on the Fourth of July. But, of course, it, Tom Schulman wins the Best Original Screenplay Award. Uh, it gets Golden Globe nominations in each of the same four categories, but does not win any. Um, it wins the BAFTA Award for Best Film. It wins the Best Casting for a Feature Film Drama from the Casting Society of America. It wins Best Foreign Film at both the César Awards in France and the Donatello Awards in Italy. It's named one of the ten best films of the year by the National Board of Review. It wins Best Motion Picture Drama at the Young Artist Awards. Tom Schulman gets a Writers Guild nomination, and Peter Ware gets a Directors Guild nomination. Uh, Schulman loses to Woody Allen for Crimes and Misdemeanors. Once again, Peter Ware loses to Oliver Stone for Born on the Fourth of July. Uh, in 2006, it was number 52 on AFI's list of 100 Years, 100 Cheers, America's Most Inspiring Movies. And that's a good spot for it. And then the year before, in 2005, the quote, Carpe Diem, Seize the Day, Boys, Make Your Lives Extraordinary, was number 92 on the AFI list of 100 years, 100 movie quotes. And it's funny, I could have sworn they say Carpe Diem or Seize the Day multiple times, but that's the only time, that one scene mm. at the beginning where Robin Williams is showing the old students at the school, and he kind of whispers it, Carpe Diem. That's the only time that he says it. Some of the students bring it up, but yeah, he doesn't repeatedly say it, kind of drill it into your head, mm. I guess. Um, Finally, we like to look at some of the connections. Can I find a James Bond connection with this movie? But of course, as I mentioned, there is an Alfred Hitchcock connection. Norman Lloyd had starred in the films Saboteur and Spellbound in the 1940s. Then he starred in, starred in and produced several episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Uh, the score was performed by Maurice Jarre. 
who we always we mentioned he had done the score for Cocktail, but then it was replaced when the directors didn't like the score. Uh, Maurice Jarre had done the score for the, the Alfred Hitchcock film Topaz. Okay, for the personal connection, as I mentioned, I saw the film for the first time in 2015. They had a screening at the Arrow Theater to like in honor of Robin Williams. I believe it was a double feature with this and Good Will Hunting, of all movies. Uh, and they had a Q&A at the end with Norman Lloyd and Tom Schulman. Norman Lloyd was 100 years old at the time of the, of the Q&A. After the movie was over, I looked to my right and several there were several of the cast members rushed the stage because they said they wanted to meet, quote, their headmaster. And I found out later, I, I did some digging on Twitter to figure, okay, who was it? And it was the actors who played Dalton, Meeks, and Cameron, who were all still friends. They all lived in L.A., and they just showed up at the screening and, and cheered him on. Um, one of my favorite stories was last year when Chad and I were having lunch one day at work. Kurtwood Smith walked into the cafeteria at Fox, and I was so nervous, and I was like, I don't want to say something to him. We're eating. And so I waited. He excused himself to go use the restroom, and as he was coming back in, I kind of wandered over to to look, go get some silverware or just anything so that I could conveniently bump into him. And I, I stopped. I introduced myself, and he was really nice. He asked me what my name was. I said, oh, I'm Mike. And he goes, oh, Kurtwood, nice to meet you. And I just said, oh, I, I'm a huge fan. I said, you're Clarence Boddicker. I totally nerd-boyed out on him. <laughs> and then I mentioned that I had a Touchstone podcast, and I was going to watch Dead Poet Society. And he said, oh, yeah, I just watched the film recently, and it still holds up, and I'm really proud of that. But, uh, yeah, I got to meet uh, Neil Perry's father, but more importantly, Clarence Boddicker and Red Foreman. <laughs> they were going to be talking about William Shakespeare. Oh, God. Oh, I know. A lot of you look forward to this about as much as you look forward to root canal work. We're going to talk about Shakespeare as someone who writes something very interesting. Now, many of you have seen Shakespeare done very much like this. Oh, Titus, bring your friend hither. <laughs> but if any of you have seen Mr. Marlon Brando, no, that Shakespeare can be different. France, Romans, countrymen, let me rest. You can also imagine maybe John Wayne is Macbeth going, well, is this a dagger I see before me? <laughs> okay well we'll wrap, we'll wrap things up as we mentioned we got two films one i think clearly better than the other but solid entries into disney's canon i like i said disorganized crime has the feel of an old goofy disney comedy dead poet society is uplifting chad do you think these are great fits for disney and their ideals for having touchstone pictures uh, i do i obviously dead poet society is the more successful film and like we said, Disorganized Crime could have been a better film than it turned out, but hindsight is always twenty twenty. Who knows what the script actually, how the script actually read? But yeah, I think you know, nineteen eighty nine is turning out to be an interesting year for Disney and Touchstone, mm. and and yeah, we'll uh, continue that on the next episode. Yeah, for sure. And like I said, I always like to look and see what else Walt Disney Pictures was doing at the same time. And Honey, I Shrunk the Kids came out just after Dead Poets Society. It was also written by Tom Schulman, who did Dead Poets Society. Uh, it goes on to be a box office smash, making $130 million. Um, they all, Disney also re-released Peter Pan on July 14th, and that ran in theaters for just over a month and made $29 million, $29.4 million. Yeah, we're going to get into it late 89. That's when the, the, the animation renaissance begins with one of Chad's favorite movies mm -hmm. as well. 
But um, as far as our next episode of Touchstone, we get two more actors, two more lead actors returning to Touchstone for the first time in a few years. Tom Hanks makes his triumphant return, as well as we get to see a gritty, gritty version of Tom Selleck. So to find out what movies, you'll have to just uh, tune in. Um, this is Out of Touchstone. My name is Mike DeKalb. You can find me on Twitter at Mike DeKalb. I'm also run the Out of Touchstone Twitter at Out of Touchstone. If you, have any, you want to drop me a line, you can email me at uh, outoftouchstone at gmail.com. My, my co-host, Chad Smart, you can find him on Twitter at Chad Smart. He's also the host and proprietor of the Positive Cynicism podcasting network, the PCPN. Chad, do you have any final thoughts before we say goodbye? Well, you know, with Dead Poet Society, I think all I can say is YOLO. <laughs> this is Out of Touchstone, and we are out of time. Out of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, visit outoftouchstone.com. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool, thank you, good night.